First Samuel 13, Christian pragmatism is the title of the message. The concept of pragmatism is one that aims to approach circumstances and decisions based upon subjective standards of reason, of experience, and of personal perception. Pragmatism justifies its actions through results. That's the idea of pragmatism, that actions are justified through results, justifies its thoughts through circumstances, justifies its perspectives through observations. May I say that again? Pragmatism justifies its actions through results, justifies its thoughts through the circumstances, and justifies its perspectives through observations. Now, in many circumstances, pragmatism is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's not a bad thing for us to use what we see and what we know as a basis for making decisions. Uh, I was working on my car a little bit the last couple of days, and you know, there comes a point where you just have to see what you have, know what you know, and make a decision as to whether or not you think you can do it, and whether or not it, it can get done, and whether or not you have what you need, and if you don't use the input that you have around you when you're making these decisions, you can find yourself in a pretty bad place. So pragmatism in, in any circumstance is not necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, when you talk to people, particularly people in education and such, they might use pragmatic as one of the descriptors of their personality. They would say, I am, a, uh, I am pragmatic or I am a pragmatist as something that they are pleased with or proud of. So in many circumstances, the concepts of pragmatism are not inherently wrong or not even inherently negative. Uh, the problem with pragmatism, however, is that there's really no room within the philosophy of pragmatism, if you're a, a pure pragmatist, for faith. Faith and pragmatism oftentimes find themselves conflicting one with another. The idea that you're making decisions wholly or um, at least in part based upon reason, experience, and perception, well, sometimes faith asks us to make decisions outside of that realm, doesn't it? Outside of the realm of reason, outside of the realm of perception, outside of the realm of experience. We talked just in Sunday school this morning about Abraham in Genesis 22 sacrificing or about to sacrifice his son Isaac. God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And you can imagine what must have been going through Abraham's mind knowing that God had promised that Isaac would be the seed through whom Abraham's blessings would flow. And Abraham is walking Isaac up to Mount Moriah where they are going to do this sacrifice. And he says... God has promised me that Isaac will be the seed through whom all these blessings will flow, and yet God is asking me to sacrifice my son on an altar. And they just don't mesh. But the Bible tells us that Abraham, by faith, did what he did not understand, and of course God stopped him from, from killing his son and provided a ram who was caught as the replacement for Isaac and that sacrifice. If I were to name in our modern culture the number one enemy of faith, particularly among the believing world, I might name pragmatism in Christian thought as one of the number one enemies of faith. Christian pragmatism foregoes reliance on the promises of God and the promises of God's word in deference to 
what we see around us, perceived reality. People see what is going on around them and then they read God's word and Christian pragmatism will oftentimes lessen the impact of God's word upon their decisions and rather forego that for a, a loyalty to the circumstances that are around us. We often sing a song here at Legacy Baptist Church. It's one of my favorites called Trust and Obey. We sing it a lot on Tuesday nights. And the second verse of that song says this, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. The message of this song and the message of the Word of God is that spiritually speaking, we can't simply trust experience to be our teacher as to what's possible through faith. Faith, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is often the opposite of pragmatism. Whereas pragmatism states that our actions are to be based on reason, on experience, faith says that our actions are to be based upon complete trust in what God has told us, complete trust in the Word of God, even at the expense of what we have experienced, even at the expense of what our eyes say, even at the expense of what our mind is telling us is true. The scriptures teach us that if we will maintain loyalty to the promises of God's word, we will find in them success. And here's the thing, that, that faith builds a different kind of experience, doesn't it? As you step out in faith, and as you see God be faithful to you, you begin to build an experience that says, when I don't know what's going on, I know God does. And so we begin to trust, not necessarily the circumstances that are right in front of us, but to trust our experience that we have seen God work in circumstances before to be able to exercise faith in the current circumstances. And today we're going to see an example of pragmatism through the historical account of King Saul. I uh, kind of feel bad. You know, King Saul wasn't necessarily a bad man, but there's not a lot of good examples. He, he doesn't exist in the scriptures to give us a lot of good examples. He exists in the scriptures to give us a lot of bad examples. And, and we're, we're always kind of um, using him as, a, as an example of what not to do. And today's going to be another one of those. An example of what not to do. And then as we see the way Saul approached his understanding of obe obedience to God pragmatically, and we're going to see why that was a problem, we are then going to transition and consider some of the ways that this same attitude of pragmatism can creep into our own lives. So we're going to try to get through the entire chapter this morning. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. We'll read them together. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people 
he sent every man to his tent. Now we step into this historical setting with Saul having reigned over Israel and he's, he's reigned two years or he's in the second year of his reign. Now there's an interesting way of describing time here. Uh, it says Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years. You say, well, what's going on there? Why does it say he reigned one year? If, if, it, if it said he reigned two years, then obviously he reigned one, right? You, you can't get to the second year of your reign without going through the first year of your reign. Is it just being repetitive? Does it just think that we're all preschoolers? What's going on here? Well, actually, really what's happening here is Saul reigned one year is kind of the end of what was taught in Samuel 11 and 12. In, in 1 Samuel 11 and 12, we see the choosing of Samuel. We see the events surrounding his um, coronation. We see uh, the... Um, excuse me, choosing of Saul, uh, the events surrounding his coronation, we see Samuel rebuke the people, we see Saul deliver the people from the nation of Ammon and from Nahash. We saw all of that in, in chapters 11 and 12, and that, as it were, comprised the events surrounding the first year of his reign. And now the Bible's telling us after all of those events, that was in the first year, now we're into the second year of his reign. And that's why the, the text says it that way, even though it seems a little confusing. And it appears at this point that the conflict with Ammon is over. That makes sense because the, the defeat that we read about last time was, was pretty, um, pretty definitive, it would seem. So much so that there weren't two soldiers together in the army of Ammon. A pretty definitive defeat. So, Ammon is over, but, but we're still in a time of tension. And the text seems to indicate that, that this tension has been almost continuous since the very beginning of Saul's coronation. We walk through the text and, and we'll find that things have not gone well. Israel is beginning to reap the very negative consequences of their rejection of God's rule over them, the negative consequences of choosing this king uh, as their king. And this tension is not at this point in 1 Samuel 13 with Ammon. It's rather with the Philistines. So Saul commissions an army and he has 3,000 men. He sent the rest of the men home. The idea here, and I'm sorry that that's a little bit washed out, but the idea here is that Saul is not really in battle mode at this point. He's in maintenance mode. He has 2,000 men and you see Bethel is up to the top. Michmash is just below it. So within this small little area, there's 2,000 men with Saul. And then Saul has Jonathan, a man named Jonathan, in Gibeah, which is south of Bethel and Michmash. Not too far south, um, uh, several miles, but south nonetheless. And, and Jonathan has 1,000 men with him. And remember, Gibeah is Saul's hometown. This is where Saul lives. And we'll find out in a moment that it's also where Jonathan lives. So, so this is a maintenance force. This is not an assault force. He isn't fighting. He's just trying to keep them at bay. And we can perhaps see that this area is not a, not a large area. Israel's already a very small nation. And this area in Israel is a very small, compact area. So they're not holding a lot of ground here. And we're not to perceive it as holding a lot of ground. We're also introduced here, as I just mentioned, to a man named Jonathan. Now, up to this point in the text... The name Jonathan has never been mentioned. We don't know who this guy is. You probably know who this guy is because you've studied the Bible. But if you were reading 1 Samuel, you would not know who this guy is just yet. And you will know soon because in verse 16, the Bible tells us that Jonathan is Saul's son. 
Jonathan is Saul's son. So we're in the second year of Saul's reign, and Saul has his son Jonathan leading a, a, a thousand men uh, in his army. Now this tells us a few things. First off, I don't know how you thought of Saul over the last couple of weeks. When you've, I don't know if, if you even do this, but when I hear someone talk, I'm envisioning things in my mind. I'm, 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 I'm seeing it happen in my mind. That's how my mind works. And as I envision Saul over the past couple of weeks, if I were to envision him without any other data, um, maybe late teens, early 20s type. Um, you know, he's, he, he's, the, the Bible said he was big, he was tall, he was strong, he was well-favored, he was a good-looking man. Um, he's taking care of his father's sheep, these sorts of things, or, and his asses, certainly, as he went looking for them. And so that, that's how I would naturally envision him. But we see here that he has a full-grown son. Most likely, Saul, at this point, would still be considered a young man, but he's probably in his, in his 40s, would, would be a uh, uh, safe guess, maybe, maybe 30s, but likely 40s at this point in his life. And he has a full-grown son named Jonathan, and Jonathan has this, these thousand men here uh, in Gibeah. And it appears that Jonathan does not at all share his father's philosophy uh, of leadership or battle. It's not that he was rebellious. Don't get me wrong. Jonathan was not a rebellious man. He was not rebelling against his father's leadership in any way. But they just had a little bit of a different mindset. See, Saul was being excessively timid here with the Philistines. Okay, he, he brought together 300,000 men in Israel to take on the nation of Ammon when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him last week. Right? And now he has sent 297,000 men home, kept a maintenance force of 3,000 soldiers with the Philistines still in control. He, he didn't say, wow, look, I've got 300,000 men commissioned here ready to fight for me. Why don't I just take care of the Philistines while I'm at it? He didn't say that. He didn't say, aha, the Lord has made me king. The Lord has promised us this land. Let's just take this land back. I've got the men. The, the circumstances are right. Let's just take this back. He, he said, okay, 297,000 men. You can go home. Go back to your families. I'll just keep 3,000 here and I'll just kind of keep the Philistines at bay and just we'll, we'll, we'll maintain here. Saul's attitude in my mind is similar to that of the 10 spies when they entered the land of Canaan. Uh, it's spoken of in Numbers 13. 12 spies went in. They came back and 10 of those spies looked at the land and they said, yeah, that's a beautiful land. Everything that God said the land was is what it is, but here's the problem. The cities have big walls. And the people are strong. They're chariots in the valleys. And they're giants in the land. We, we, we can't go in there. See, God had promised it, but they looked at the circumstances and they said, it just doesn't look right for me. The circumstances aren't right. Yeah, I know God promised. God's given it to us, but I just don't, I'm not, I'm not ready yet or... We're not ready yet, or, or it's, it's, not, it's not right. It's too strong. So, for all that they knew God had promised them the land, their eyes, what they saw with their eyes, overrode what they were supposed to know in faith. It caused them to be fearful. And ultimately, it caused them to be ineffective. And they lost out on the opportunity to go into the land. And Saul is kind of there. If I may put it this way, he's still kind of hiding among the stuff. 
You know, that's where they found him when they wanted to, to crown him king, right? They said, where's Saul? The Lord had to point him out because he's hiding, he's hiding in the stuff. As king, he still has that timidness. He's still kind of hiding in the stuff. He refuses to step out in faith and do what God has promised to do. He's just got this maintenance force. But Jonathan, Jonathan, on the other hand, was deeply driven by faith to do something about these Philistines. It wasn't enough for him just to maintain this force of 3,000. He was driven to take care of these Philistines to get them out of the land. And his philosophy is similar to what we see in Numbers 13 with the final two spies, Joshua and Caleb, right? The 10 spies come back and they say, it's too many. there's giants in the land, the walls, chariots. It's too hard for us. And Joshua and Caleb say, guess what? We went into the land. It's, got, uh, it's, it's flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are huge. It's beautiful. It's everything that God promised it to be. Let's go get it. Yeah, remember the chariots? Yeah, I saw those. Let's go, let's go take care of them. Remember the giants? Yeah, 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 the giants. Let's, let's go get them. And they saw nothing but what God had promised. They saw through eyes of faith. And Jonathan has that idea. Far from a pragmatic philosophy, he had some faith. Look what he did here, verses 3 and 4. We're going to really get to study Jonathan next week. I'm so excited about that passage. But look what he says here in 3 and 4. It says, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul in Gilgal. So, Jonathan's got these thousand men force. And the Bible says it, he smites a garrison of the Philistines in Geba. Now, Geba was just north of Gibeah, not very far away from where he had his force stationed. And the word garrison here is not the same word in the Hebrew that we'll see a little bit later in the text that implies a group of men. This is more the idea of a stronghold. It might have been a monument. It might have been a tower. It, something that was to testify of the Philistine power in the land. Something that, that when Israel looked at it, they said, aha, this is Philistine power. Might there have been some men there? Yes, uh, quite possibly, but, but likely some sort of structure was destroyed, looted, sacked, and burned here. And Jonathan what, what he's doing here is he's kind of shooting that first shot across the bow. He's, he's picking a fight. He's going up to the bigger, stronger guy and he's kicking him in the shin. All right? he, he's, he's picking a fight here. And this was not expected by Saul. Saul, it, it seems very clear here from the text that Saul had no intention of picking a fight with the Philistines. He had no intention of, of starting a war here because he only has 3,000 men. He hasn't commissioned a fighting force. He's commissioned a maintenance force. But Jonathan destroys it and he picks this fight. And so Saul, Saul hears this and uh, he says, sound the horn. We've got to get some people here. Sound the horn throughout all of Israel. And the, the, the horn that sounds came with this message. Now, when I first read this, this passage, I was tempted to think of this statement as an, uh, particularly that Saul has smitten a garrison of the Philistines as some sort of misguided pride on Saul's part, right? That he's taking credit for what Jonathan did. But really, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jonathan was a, an officer in Saul's army, in Saul's military. So anything that Jonathan did was a reflection of Saul. 
Just like in a business, anything that your employees do is a reflection of your business and of, the, of your boss. Just like in the church, what, what the church does is a reflection of its pastor. So this is simply saying, um, this is laying credit where credit is due. Saul, his army, smote a garrison of the Philistines was the message. And the scriptures tell us that the Philistines heard of it and that they were angry. And it says in verse 4, Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. The Philistines are not happy now. I trust you can begin to see here Saul's mindset and the difference between his mindset and the mindset of his son. As I mentioned before, Saul is still kind of being that king that's hiding in the stuff. Don't make waves. He knows he's God's anointed. He knows God has promised to deliver the nation, but let's just maintain here. He's in maintenance mode, but, but Jonathan says, we've got an army, we're leaders, and God has promised us this land. And he kicks the Philistines in the shin. He says, let's go, let's do this, let's get this done. So the horn blows. The people are told the Philistines are angry, we have to assemble an army quickly, get to Gilgal. Get to Gilgal, get to Saul, assemble, things are about to happen, and really things are about to go downhill. Verses 5 through 7 says, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, eastward from Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that, they were in a strait, for the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. The Philistines got really angry at that kick in the shin. 30,000 chariots, the Bible tells us, 6,000 horsemen, and so many people that they couldn't count them. Now, a chariot in that day and age was effectively like a tank, Today, you're talking about power, speed. The men are fresh because they're on a chariot. They, they, they would oftentimes, they, they were machines of war. And then you had 6,000 horsemen, and uh, a man on a horse is far more effective than a man on foot in, in so many ways. And then you had so many people on the ground that they couldn't even count them. Now, this did what you would expect. This absolutely terrified the people. So the people, this is the second time they've been called by Saul in two years, right? And the men say, okay, we need to go up, we need to help, we need to fight. And they start on their way to Gilgal and they see this valley full of Philistines. They see the chariots, they see the horsemen, they see the people, they see the tents, and they are terrified and they just start running for their lives. They're running and they're hiding in caves. They're hiding in pits. They know a battle is about to happen and they don't want to die. And they figure anybody that's on the wrong side of these Philistines is going to die. So much so that the Bible tells us that many of them fled across the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They fled as far as they could away from the battle. So here is Saul. Saul's in Gilgal. And they're here because that was the precedent that Samuel laid down, right? Remember that from last... From a couple of weeks ago, Saul, uh, Samuel told Saul that when he got settled, that he would go to Gilgal and seven days later, 
Samuel would come to him? Well, that wasn't just a one-time event. That was setting a precedent. Saul, when you need me, when you need, when the nation needs to come together, go to Gilgal, call the nation, and within seven days, I, Samuel, will come and will be there with you. I'll be there if you need me. And what we'll also find here, okay, so, so Saul's got his 2,000 men. Jonathan has his 1,000 men. They come and they go to Gilgal and they call other people and everyone starts scattering when they see the Philistine army. By the end of this chapter, do you know how many men Saul has in his army? 600. So even that 3,000, that 3,000 maintenance force scattered. 2,400 of that 3,000 ran as well. And he's, he, he's there with his son Jonathan with just 600 men. And it's even going to be worse than that when we get there. So, so Samuel is supposed to come seven days to, to, to get there. And as we continue in the text, notice what verse 8 says. And he, that's Saul tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. Now consider the situation here and consider it. Let's take a moment and consider this situation pragmatically. Okay? 600 men. Nation, the morale, the morale of your army is bottom of the barrel. The nation... That, that you tried to call to you has scattered and run for the hills. Samuel, the prophet of God, the one who has the ear of God, the one who speaks for God, the one who, who uh, can bless you and, and receive that blessing of the Lord, he, he hasn't come. Seven days have passed and he's not here like he's supposed to be. And the Philistine army is massive. It's angry and it's knocking at the door. Pragmatically speaking, this is a really bad situation. And Saul has to make a choice here. And the choice is faith or no faith. Waiting on God or acting in my own strength. You can guess the choice he makes. Let's look at it in verses 9 and 10. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass, Murphy's Law was effective even back then, that as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, right? Isn't that always the way it works? Samuel shows up right afterwards. As soon as he made an end of the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. So rather than wait, rather than wait on God's timing, rather than wait for, for it to be done the way Samuel taught him it needed to be done, rather than be patient and wait on the Lord's timing, he says, it's time to do this. I can't wait any longer. Samuel hasn't shown up. Uh, and, and I need to petition the Lord for victory. But the problem is, Saul's not a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He was not a called prophet of God. He had no authority by which to perform a burnt offering. He was not cleansed. He was not sanctified. He was not in a place to perform this offering. But most of all, his actions reflect a carnality that we'll speak of a little bit later. So verse 11, uh, Saul is coming up to Samuel, the offering smoking in the background, and Saul says, Ah, Samuel, you're finally here. And Samuel says, What hast thou done? Verse 11. And Saul said, Well, here's the thing. See, I saw that the people were scattered from me and thou camest not within the days appointed. You were supposed to be here within seven days. You didn't show up. And the Philistines are gathered there together at Michmash. 
Can you see the pragmatic, the pragmatic idea here? What, what, what Saul is doing is he's looking at all of the external circumstances and he says, see, look at all of the external circumstances. Look at what's against me here, Samuel. Can't you understand here? And he goes on in verse 12 and he says, therefore, Said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord, so I forced myself. I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. I, I just, I, I, I didn't want to do it, Samuel, but I forced myself to do it because I knew that I needed God's blessing. And Samuel, he's got to be disappointed here. Saul completed his reasoning with this concern. He was afraid the battle would commence before they had a chance to petition God. So even though he had no authority, he forced himself to offer an offering so that God could bless the battle. But the problem is, has God ever blessed religious devotion over obedience? Has God ever blessed sin in any form? Saul is afraid that if he doesn't offer an animal on the altar, that God won't be with him. As if somehow God was manipulated, compelled, obligated to bless Israel because an animal was burning. But that wasn't the case, was it? The offering was a symbol. The offering was intended to be a symbol of humble submission to God and that God would fight their battle for them. God wanted the offering to be done but he didn't want it to be done at the expense of obedience, on the, at the expense of how he wanted it done. But see, Saul's mind was so stuck in his pragmatic viewpoint that the action had to be performed that he completely missed what God was actually asking of him, which was his heart, which was his submission. And where have we seen this before? Isn't this reminiscent of exactly what had happened in Israel about 25 to 30 years prior? Where the Philistines had gathered against Israel and they lost their first battle and they said, we really need help. Bring that ark. Bring the box and that box will save us. That that was the name of the message, right? God is not a box. Bring the box to save us. They got so stuck on the physical and the desire to have something physical to save them. They were so stuck on the the weight of the pragmatic situation that they were in that they pragmatically solved it by bringing the box to save them. And isn't Saul here just saying, I really needed the Lord's blessing, so I brought the calf and I burned it and now God can bless me because I burned the calf? It's really just the same thing. Saul is trusting in a burnt animal instead of in an ark. But it's the same conundrum. So effectively, in Saul's misguided understanding of the effect of the sacrifice upon the events and the power of God over these events, he convinced himself that blatantly disobeying God's word in order to perform this sacrifice was more important than missing out on the sacrifice but obeying God. Very material focus. It's all backwards. It's all backwards. In his mind, he was self-justified. His sin was self-justified because of the circumstances he was in. And this is pragmatism. Because of my particular set of circumstances, God's word doesn't matter here. Because of the particular extreme circumstances I'm in, God's word has no answer for me. God, I can't align myself with God's word and see this solution come out the way it needs to, so I'm just going to do it my way. That's pragmatism. 
And that's exactly what Saul was doing here. Notice Samuel's response. And Samuel said to Saul, this is actually verse um, 13. I apologize, it still says 12 up there. And the next verse looks like it says 12 too. So just uh, look, look in your Bible if you want the actual verse numbers here. But, and Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. See, God was looking for a particular type of person to lead his people. God didn't need a man who was strong or charismatic. God didn't need a man who was smart and tactical and able to fight well. God didn't need someone who could inspire large armies. What God needed in a leader was someone who was able to see the field with eyes of faith. That God didn't need numbers to win the battle. That even if it was just Saul and his son standing there against 30,000 chariots, if God was in it, they would win the battle. God didn't need a burnt offering just then. He could have gotten Samuel there sooner or he could have had the armies hold off until Samuel arrived, right? God is not beyond that. But Saul didn't see that because his mind was stuck in the physical. His mind was stuck in this life rather than thinking through eyes of faith. Now Saul has completely revealed his heart and it's one that's carnal, it's one that's faithless. He has no concept of the reality that God wants to fight this battle through him. He thinks he has to fight this battle. He's carrying the weight of the entire nation upon his shoulders and he refuses to yield it. He has taken a pragmatic approach to his kingly reign and this approach gave lip service to God but falters when the rubber met the road. When it was time to decide whether to truly trust God or whether to trust himself, he chose himself every time. And because of this, Samuel informed Saul that his dynasty as a king will not continue. That, that the reign of Saul and his family over Israel will not continue. But that there will be a new king. A new line of kings. And that's what he says continuing in verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So God says, Saul, you're not a man after my own heart, and I'm going to find someone that is. Now, we're going to speak about this phrase in two weeks. Not next week, but the week after. We're going to preach on the idea of being a man after God's own heart. We all know that this phrase uh, points to David. But the real question is, does anybody really know what that phrase means? What does it mean? to be a man after God's own heart. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, we have more pressing matters today, but we'll hit that in two weeks. Do take note of this, however. From this day forward, Saul is well aware of the fact that he's been rejected, that his line has been rejected as, king, as the kingly line. And if you want to trace Saul's jealous rage and his crazy paranoia, it probably began on this day. This was likely the very root of his jealous paranoia that would, of course, flourish for, for many years to come. So, in verses 15 through 23, we um, see a very dire scene as this chapter ends. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 15 through 23. Uh, it's not all going to be up on the screen, but feel free to follow along in your Bible. And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him. Here it is, about six hundred men. 
And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leadeth to Ophrah, unto the land of Shaul. And another company turned to the way of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters, and for the forks, and for the axes, and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and Jonathan his son was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. So here's the situation. Samuel gets angry with Saul and leaves. He goes back to Gibeah. Saul is preparing for this battle. King of Israel. No Samuel. 600 soldiers. And by the way, the Philistines, because they were in charge in the land of Israel, had decided many years earlier that they weren't going to allow Israel to have any blacksmiths in the land. Because if you don't have blacksmiths, then you can't make swords and spears, and you can't make weapons to to revolt. So the blacksmiths of the land were all Philistines. And Philistines simply said, hey, Israel, when you want to sharpen your farming equipment, you come down to our cities, you sharpen your farming equipment with our cities, and then you can go back with our blacksmiths, and then you can go back and use the sharpened tools in your fields. So there were no blacksmiths in Israel. They had a file with which they could kind of sharpen their implements on their own. But no one that had the skill to really make weapons or sharpen even the weapons that they had or the tools that they had. The only people that had swords and spears in the entire land were Saul and his son Jonathan. So two swords, maybe two spears, in the, uh, an army of 602, okay? An army of 602 with two swords, two spears, and a whole bunch of farmers with farming equipment. And they're standing there watching an army of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and men more numerable than the sand of the sea marching toward them. This is the kind of bleak situation that we find ourselves in at the end of 1 Samuel 13. And we're going to leave that bleak situation where it is, and we're going to pick up there next week. Needless to say, however, they're in a pretty bad place right now, aren't they? And keep that in your mind as we come to next week. But as we close today, I'd like us to reconsider or to go back and to consider Saul's actions here. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about, we're warning against Christian pragmatism. One of Saul's big problems here is that he saw this situation through the eyes of the physical circumstances he was in rather than through the eyes of the spiritual opportunities that God had to do wonderful things through him. But more to the point this morning is the understanding that Saul was dealing with spiritual pragmatism where he genuinely thought in his mind, 
in his way of thinking that a sin against God would somehow bring about God's favor or eventually God's blessing would be poured, about, uh, poured out on him because of his sacrifice. Saul knowingly chose to offer a burnt offering even though he had no spiritual right to do so because he thought that he would receive a greater advantage by doing it and by maybe boosting the morale of his people, maybe trying to get some of the people to come back, um, maybe also incurring God's favor, than if he had simply waited on God and done it the way God had prescribed, which is wait for Samuel, let Samuel do the offering, uh, and then the Lord will uh, be with you. And not only did Saul see the problem from a physical or a carnal perspective rather than a spiritual or faith perspective, but this carnality led to a carnal attempt to solve his problem. Rather than running to prayer, rather than running to faith, he ran to sin. He ran to himself. And what I hope we can see today is that Saul's mindset, though spiritual in concept, in that he was indeed petitioning God through a burnt offering, was in fact entirely carnal in practice. Though he gave lip service to the fact that he believed God and that he was trusting God, doing a burnt offering, asking God's favor, his heart, in, in his heart, it was all about him. It was all about, can I do this? And what can I do to make this easier and better for me? He, he adopted this strange ends justifies the means mentality that convinced him that even though he knew what he was doing was wrong, somehow it would work in his favor. And this is not uncommon for us to do either. And that's what we need to see today. And we're going to remind ourselves through three application points that we can find ourselves here in our lives very easily as well. And the first point that we're going to make is this. Right and wrong are not defined by good intentions. We need to know that right and wrong are not defined by good intentions. Saul's sinful actions in offering a burnt sacrifice unto the Lord were with the best of intentions. He wanted to seek God's favor. He wanted to boost morale. He wanted to encourage God's people. He wanted to defeat God's enemies. But the pragmatic concept of moral relativity somehow found his way into Saul's thinking. Moral relativity states that morality is, is dynamic. That morality is not set in stone, that it is fluid and is defined by perception or defined by outcome. In the context of this first point, we speak of people who think things are okay simply because their intention was right when they did it. A dog bites your hand and the owner says, oh, he's just playing. As if the fact that the dog was just playing with you makes it okay that he just bit your hand. Well, maybe the dog is just playing with me, but that doesn't make it right that he just bit my hand. Or your child throws something and hits another child in the head. And the parent of the child that threw it said, oh, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know any better. As if somehow the fact that the child doesn't know any better made it okay that he just hurt the other child. Well, yes, maybe he didn't know any better, but that doesn't justify the child's actions and it doesn't make the child's actions right. The child's actions are still not okay. Now, the same can be said for our lives as Christians. This phrase, God sees my heart. It's true. It's true. But it can be so easily abused, folks. Yes, God does see our heart. But this does not mean that God excuses our sinful actions because of our good intentions. Just because our heart was rightly intended when we did that wrong thing 
doesn't mean God's okay with it because he sees our heart. Many pastors are guilty of this. As I thought of this, I was trying to think of illustrations. I'm a bad illustrator. But this one um, came to mind from a pastor's perspective. A pastor takes a biblically-based standard and he preaches that standard as if it's law. And he does this it's, 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 it's a form of uh, using guilt or manipulation to convince his people that if they don't hold to a certain standard, they aren't right with God. And they have all good intentions in doing this, okay? They want their people to make right choices. And they fear that if the people knew of their full liberty in Christ, that some of them might make the wrong choice, which is true. And so instead of uh, allowing them to make the wrong choice, they, they up the ante a little bit and they preach standard as if it's biblical fact in order to keep their people doing what they perceive as right because they don't want their people to fall into wrong choices. Now, the intention of this is right, but it doesn't change the fact that they're using tactics that do not trust the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide believers. You're trusting in yourself to manipulate and guilt believers into doing what's right. Whereas the pastor should say, I'm going to teach the truth of God's word and I, I, I will live standards and I will perhaps suggest standards, but it's up to God's people to set standards in their lives through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and that can be a way that, that a pastor gets pragmatic. But take it the other direction and a pastor can do this the other way as well. From a legalistic application towards license. A pastor sees the dangers of manipulation and guilt and he swings the other way. He wants his people to understand their freedom in Christ so with entirely good intentions in his heart, he avoids preaching about sin at all. He skips those parts of the Bible which is about all but maybe, you know, that much, right? I mean, there's a lot to be said about doing right in the Bible. He sticks to grace, love, peace, joy. These are good things and certainly we ought not lose those. And he even gets upset with people. I've had pastors get so upset with me over certain things that I've preached because they call me legalistic because I've preached on sin. Now his desire is to avoid legalism, to avoid judgmentalism, and his intentions are completely good. But that doesn't change the fact that he's doing so in a way that is outside of faith. He is doing so in a way that is pragmatic. And all of his good intentions can't make his wrong actions correct. Now, the same can be said of our lives as individual believers as well. Disobedience to the scriptures, regardless of our good intentions, is still disobedience. There is certainly grace to be found in Christ. And praise God that he is patient with us. He, he will work with us. Uh, through our misunderstandings. I'm not talking about ignorance here. I'm talking about disobedience. He will work with us. But right and wrong are not defined by what we intended. They are defined by the precepts of God's Word. So, and, and, and volition still plays a part here. Again, I'm not saying that the man who didn't know what the Bible had to say but was doing something as his best understanding of what God expects of him that's not what I'm preaching of. I'm preaching on the man who knows what God expects, but he's trusting his good intentions toward God to make up for his poor actions. Okay? That's, that's what we're, we're focusing on here. Our good intentions of not wanting to hurt someone's feelings or not offending people doesn't change God's moral expectation that we would tell them the truth, does it? Our good intention of not stirring up controversy doesn't change God's moral expectation that we stand for what is right. 
our good intention of being able to provide for our families doesn't change God's moral expectation that we don't cheat and we don't steal. And if we start looking at this world pragmatically, we'll begin to get that confused and say, well, God wants me to provide for my family, and so I'm going to steal to do it. Well, regardless of your good intentions in providing for your family, if you've broken God's law to do it, it doesn't please God. God has biblical expectations upon His children, and those expectations are forged through faith, not through sight. Things which God asks us to do that, pragmatically speaking, make no sense, or uh, pragmatically speaking, might even work to our detriment, but God's Word tells us and promises us that if we will obey His Word, He will bless us for it. We can't work that out physically all the time, but it is always there. And this philosophy ought to override all of our actions. When God tells us to be honest, even when honesty is not pragmatically advantageous, we can either obey and reap the spiritual blessings, or we can disobey, like Saul, because the circumstances don't seem to warrant honesty. When God tells us to forgive, even when forgiveness is not pragmatically desirable, we can either obey and reap the spiritual benefits, or we can disobey like Saul because the circumstances don't warrant forgiveness. They don't deserve it. Name the area. Whether it's money, time, effort, love, patience, kindness, any area of faith. And pragmatically speaking, there will always be a reason why we don't want to do it God's way. There will always be reasons why we should trust ourselves and what we see. But by faith, we know that if we do it God's way, it will be blessed. Saul had a morally pragmatic mind here that convinced him that his good intentions made up for his sinful actions. And the result of his moral relativism was he lost the kingdom dynasty. And we as God's people must understand that God's word is what defines right and wrong not good intentions. And what we stand to lose by ignoring this is spiritual blessing. We won't be cast into hell. You won't lose your salvation. But we will miss out on the very best that God has for us and for our families because we didn't walk by faith and obedience. So right and wrong are not defined by good intentions. Number two, righteous act, uh, religious actions excuse me, can still sometimes be Sinful actions. We make a careful distinction in the second point between that which is religious and that which is spiritual. Sometimes, um, well, something which is spiritual is that which is sourced in the Spirit of God. Something which is religious is that which is material or physical that is intended to direct us unto the spiritual. But religious actions don't always live up to their intentions. Religious actions don't always end up being spiritual. When done improperly, religious actions can even be a detriment to our spirituality. Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 that they could perform the religious actions of almsgiving and the religious action of prayer, but still do so in a sinful way because of the manner in which they did it. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 11 that believers could observe the Lord's Supper in a way that is contrary to the will of God, so that though they are doing the religious action of observing the Lord's table, their heart and the manner in which they do it is so abominable, Paul said, that some of you are even dying because God is judging you, chastening you for the manner in which you're performing this. 
James 2 warns the Jews throughout the empire of Rome that they could sin in their church meetings, uh, that, that in their church meetings they were sinning by judging men upon their superficial standards of wealth and of appearance rather than on the fruit of their good works. So we, we must never fool ourselves into thinking that just because the things we do are religious in nature, that makes them spiritual or that we're pleasing God. Saul was doing something very religious, right? He was offering a burnt offering upon the altar uh, for God to, to incur God's favor upon the battle. But his religious efforts were selfish, were disobedient, were out of place. And this made his actions, despite their religious undertones, deeply sinful. Now, we state without apology at Legacy Baptist Church that what we do here is not intended to be an extension of religious devotion, but rather an extension of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we do things religiously? Yes, we do. We do a scripture reading and memory work every week. We stand and we sit and we do some of those things that as I've talked to people around the community, they say, oh, you know, I don't want to do be at a church that does the standing and sitting thing, you know? And, and th- what they're doing is they're associating church with religion, right? Church and religion. And we don't want to do religion here either. We sing because singing is essentially human. It teaches us lessons in a memorable format. And, God, and, and it's a God-ordained method of praising Him. We don't sing because of our religion. We memorize verses because the Scripture teaches us that there are deep spiritual benefits to hiding the Word of God in our heart. We don't do it because it's a religion. But while all of these things are intended to be spiritual in nature, you know, they can just as easily become religion, can't they? We can take any of these acts and make them just an extension of our religion. And in doing so, we can divorce what we're doing from a right heart motive and intent, and those religious actions can indeed, in and of themselves, become sinful. When we elevate our actions above their intended use, we think somehow these actions are earning us favor with God, we're missing the mark. When we as Christians use religious intentions as a shield for our sinful actions, we do ourselves no favor and God is not well pleased. Third and finally this morning, we must remember that the ends, the end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. This is the end of the road for the concept of pragmatism and one which modern Christian church must understand. The results that we achieve in this life, spiritually or otherwise, do not justify the means by which we get those results. When we use unbiblical means to achieve results, even if they're biblical or spiritual results, we do so at the expense of obedience and at the expense of God's blessing. We want people to be saved, but that doesn't mean that any method that we use to lead people to Christ is right. We want people to be in church, but that doesn't mean that any methods we use to get people in church are right. We want our children to serve God, but that doesn't mean that any method we use to get children to serve God is right. In each of these methods, we have all seen churches use worldly and carnal ideas or methods to achieve ends. Using worldly carnal things to get people into the church might truly have the result of some people getting saved. But the question is, what has been sacrificed for that result? Could God not have saved their souls without us needing to drag the church into the world? 
using worldly and carnal methods or even guilt and manipulation to get our children to serve God may truly result in some young people who figure it out and actually serve God. But at what cost to those who finally one day realize that they've been lied to or manipulated? Could God not have compelled those young people to serve God without your manipulation? Without um, having to be falsely compelled? The list could go on of ways that we allow this ends justifies the means concept to override. And I'd love to give an example. I'm going to skip it for time. No, I don't think I am. Um, when we adopt an ends justifies the means philosophy, we find that what we are doing is sacrificing long-term spiritual effectiveness on the altar of short-term spiritual success. Ends justifies the means, sacrifices long-term spiritual effectiveness at the altar of short-term spiritual success. And I'm going to give an example here, and this example might step on some toes today, and that's why I was deciding whether or not I wanted to share I am going to share it, because I think we need to know about this. Um, one of the greatest examples of Christian pragmatism in, our, uh, in the past couple of generations is the evangelist Billy Graham. And I know many people have a great deal of respect for Billy Graham, especially up here because of Northwestern University and such. But Billy Graham is one of the most well-known Christian pragmatists of the past century. He adopted a philosophy that said it doesn't matter who we have to work with for our support. We just want people to come in and hear the gospel. In doing so, the organization adopted a deeply ecumenical philosophy of ministry which drew very, very shallow lines of separation. They would work with anyone who called themselves a Christian and allow even the most heretical elements inside the Christian namesake to take part in their ministry. They showed no discernment regarding separation from using worldly or carnal means to draw people into their ministry. They worked with openly gospel-denying organizations. And the philosophy was this. Just get people in to hear the gospel. Billy Graham was a fantastic communicator. Um, he he did a fantastic job of sharing the gospel. Just get people in. That's all that matters. They'll hear the gospel. They'll get saved. And we will have been successful. And as a short-term strategy, it really worked well. Millions heard the gospel. Thousands legitimately got saved. But at what cost? Pastor, what do you mean at what cost? Did the Crusades of Billy Graham have the kind of impact on culture that we might look at the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening had? We're talking how, how long did the Crusades really touch culture? The years that they were going on and maybe a decade after. Which tells us what about the long-term fruit of those efforts? Which tells us what? Well, here's the thing. Christian culture, as it's now reaping, that we're kind of in the generation after the Crusades. And what we have now is a Christian culture that has no discernment, no understanding of doctrine, no standards of biblical separation. And now that generation that was saved under his ministry 
went to whatever church was there, right? I mean, the Catholic churches were there, the Episcopalian churches were there, the Universalist churches, everyone came, and they went back out and they fanned back out into all of these churches. And now we have a bunch of saved people under Billy Graham's ministry who have children and grandchildren who have no foundation and who are not in the church. And why? They're not in the church because there was no discipleship. There was no continuation. There was no doctrine. There was no foundation. It was save them and then send them out, which is not what Jesus Christ told us to do. He said, go into the world and make disciples. Teach baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's not enough just to get people to understand the gospel. We have to make disciples. And where his ministry failed was he said, today we're going to compromise. Today we're going to be ecumenical. Today we're going to drop every barrier of separation to get as many people to hear the gospel as possible. But what about tomorrow? What about this generation? This generation is falling flat on its face spiritually because... There was no discipleship. There was no doctrine because the philosophy of Billy Graham's ministry was one of ecumenicism and compromise. That's Christian pragmatism. Are those who were saved under his ministry saved? Absolutely. But God didn't need compromise in order to see it done. God didn't need the church to compromise every distinctive to have his work done. And what the church did, what Billy Graham's organization did and, and the churches that supported him was sacrifice long-term spiritual effectiveness on the altar of short-term spiritual success. Now, this idea then is that the ends do not justify the means. It, the ends justify the means says it doesn't matter how we get the job done as long as it gets done. But all throughout the Bible, God shows that He doesn't just care about what is done. He cares about how it's done. God didn't just want a burnt offering from anyone. God wanted it from a properly ordained and cleansed Levite according to the law. Saul didn't see it. All he saw was the end that needed a means. So we look at these three points. Right and wrong are not defined by good intentions. Religious actions can still be sinful actions. The end does not justify the means. And the question as we close is this. Are we guarding our hearts against the dangers of Christian pragmatism? As we've walked through Saul's actions today and we've sought to apply them to our hearts, did the Holy Spirit highlight some place in your life where you or your family has fallen into a level of pragmatism, where you've ignored what you know the Word of God is asking you to say because you've just seen it as not practical for your daily life? It's just, when, when, it, when push comes to shove, Pastor, what, what, what God is asking me to do, just, I can't do that and be successful. That's pragmatism. Are there ways that our church has yielded to these uh, ideas of Christian pragmatism and find that those things which are intended to be done for God's glory are actually being done out of a fruit of carnality? The psalmist asked God to search him, to know him, to see if there be any wicked way in him, to lead him in the way everlasting. The psalmist there was asking God to point out anything wicked in his heart. And these points of pragmatism can be deep and they can be subtle. But if the Holy Spirit has pointed out today 
some area of pragmatism, may I encourage you to deal with it biblically through prayer, through repentance, so that we can be people full of faith to the end that we can be truly spiritually effective for God. Let's pray as we